I will shuffle again. Don't you worry. You get your homemade champions ready and line them all up. I'll be watching the television with you at ringside, popping off about how hard he hits and this and that. You let Ellis and Quarry fight it out, and then let Joe Frazier meet the winner or whoever the uh, homemade champion is, or I may say the Mickey Mouse title. Uh, I have a belt at home says world heavyweight champion and for a man to be the champion he's going to have to take my belt and the day that he meet me and if he beat me I'm going to hand him my belt and I want you to be the announcer that night because I want to see you quiet I want to quiet you at once and for all you're listening to the seasoned migrant a show about culture migration and ideas and how these have shaped our understanding of the world I'm Leonard Vaut. And I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And on this episode, we'll be talking about Muhammad Ali, boxer, activist, and icon. I remember when I was younger, I used to watch highlight reels of Muhammad Ali's fights, his training sessions, his interviews with all of his quirky quips. And the reason why he was so influential and inspirational to myself and so many around the world is that he wasn't just a fighter in the ring, but he was a fighter against racial injustice and a system that oppressed others just for the color of their skin. And Muhammad Ali's message resonated so deeply with people all around the world that nowadays it's hard to imagine how electric it must have felt to be watching his fights live on TV. And whilst we were researching for this episode, we came across this account of this Pakistani Muslim researcher that reminisces what it was like growing up watching Ali on TV as a teenager in Scotland. And he says, the fight itself would be watched in great admiration. Any small act of defiance or playful misdemeanor by Ali was lapped up with great applause and recognition. He was an oasis for us in a world where being non-white meant being constantly subject to abuse, taunts, and ridicule. Quite simply, Ali belonged to us. And so in this episode, we're going to be talking about how Muhammad Ali becomes this icon for social resistance, for fighting against injustice, and how he wasn't just impactful in America, but all around the world. In many ways, Muhammad Ali's influence on the way that sport was racialized was a result of his move away from the legacy of boxers before him. And so we're starting off by looking at the context of the boxing scene that Muhammad Ali entered. So when we look at boxing at the turn of the 20th century, we see that it's no different to any other aspect of American society back then. It's deeply segregated and racist. And while we see this with sports in general, boxing particularly brought out these white American anxieties to the forefront. And this is no better summarized than with this quotation from an editor of the New York Sun back in 1895, who wrote, we are in the midst of a growing menace. The black man is rapidly forging to the front ranks in athletics, especially in the field of fisticuffs. We are in the midst of a black rise against white supremacy. 
And this was so worrisome for white people in the American public because so much of these theories of white supremacy rested on discriminatory rationalizations that argued that white people were just biologically and genetically superior than black people. And suddenly we have boxers like, for example, Jack Johnson, who with their sheer physicality overpower their white opponents in the ring. And the kind of success that Jack Johnson had as a boxer challenged these myths of how black people were supposedly inferior to white people. Right. And this all changed when Jack Johnson fought Tommy Burns for the heavyweight title. So before that fight, white boxers refused to fight black opponents in any official heavyweight matches. And so as a result, black people could never contend for the heavyweight title. But then this fight happens in 1908. And Everything that happens in the fight is so representative of what the white American attitudes were back in the day. So Jack Johnson beats Burns so hard in this fight that they actually cut the filming short. So people don't witness the embarrassment of a black man beating up a white man. And the police themselves actually went into the ring and broke up the 14th round before Tommy Burns could get knocked out. And... It took another 25 years before another black fighter was allowed to have a shot at the heavyweight title. And this happened with black boxer Joe Louis, who for him to get to a place where he could contend that fight, there was a lot of very hard public relations work going on in the background. Joe Louis' image was sanitized completely so that he could become acceptable to the white American public. And this all had to happen before he could set that foot in that ring in 1937. And his PR team and this whole media strategy that he had came down to these so-called seven commandments, which included this outrageous one that he couldn't be photographed alongside white women. And to go further with his image, he even enlisted in the American army so he could be portrayed as this American patriot. And then fast forward another 20 or so years and you get Muhammad Ali, or at the time, Cassius Clay, who comes along and gets catapulted into the public eye after winning the gold medal at the Rome Olympics in 1960. And he was received as this all-American hero, not just because he represented America, but also because Ali's win had been against a Polish fighter, which for Americans wasn't just a win for the gold medal, but a symbolic victory against the Soviet Union in this Cold War period. But being an all-American hero came with certain implications about what image you had and how that conformed to the American public, which really meant white Americans. And Cassius Clay, at this point in his career, was actually quite patriotic and proud to represent the United States as an athlete abroad. And well, when it came to race issues in this time when he was 18, a Soviet reporter at the Olympics had asked him what he thought of the condition of black people in the US. And he responded that he thought that qualified people were working on the issue and said, to me, the USA is still the best country in the world, counting yours. Right. But this patriotic sentiment and, you know, him wearing his Olympic gold medal proudly was very much short-lived. So just after this celebratory homecoming event where he had been honored by the Louisville mayor as a true patriot, he was ordered out of a segregated restaurant. And this is where Cassius was basically told where his place was in a white American society. And so it's here that he breaks away from his status as an all-American hero and what that entails and a new identity begins to take root. 
So now we're looking at what this new identity became for Cassius. And we're first looking at the role that Islam played in his life and how his black identity became first and foremost how he saw himself. So from this moment in the restaurant in 1960 following the Olympics, we jump to 1964, where all these brewing thoughts of identity manifested themselves in this huge turning point for his legacy. And well, in February of 1964, Cassius becomes the heavyweight champion against all odds. And just a day after he wins his new title, he announces that he's converted to Islam, that now he's got an allegiance to the Nation of Islam movement, and how he's changing his name from Cassius Clay to Cassius X, and eventually to Muhammad Ali. And this, of course, sends shockwaves through the country. And if we just compare this new attitude to just four years before at the Olympics, Cassius had been this proud poster boy for America, who was neither criticizing nor challenging the social order in the country. Just take that answer to the Soviet reporter. And now he was proudly stating, I'm not an American, I'm a black man. And by rejecting his birth name of Cassius Clay and changing it to Muhammad Ali, he really wanted to shed the legacy of white oppression that his birth name carried. And while many in the Nation of Islam movement were doing the same thing, for example, Malcolm X replacing his birth names, the actual name Cassius Clay had many more layers to it. So in many ways, Cassius Clay was already a kind of post-slavery name. Muhammad Ali's father had named him Cassius after a statesman from Kentucky that had been an abolitionist. But for Muhammad Ali, the Clay surname symbolized the family name of the slave owners who enslaved his ancestors. And so this connection even to the Clay family was just too strong, even if he had been named after a decorated abolitionist. And so as a result, his name change was even more profound. And it's very important to dwell on Muhammad Ali's allegiance to the Nation of Islam as well, because this made this whole movement so much more controversial. And that was because the Nation of Islam was a really divisive group, even among black people in the 1960s and 1970s. And they were controversial because many of their aims were very different and much more radical than other groups. Instead of integration, they were looking for black people to form a separate state with their own autonomous government. And at its core, the movement was about radical love of oneself for black individuals. And many of its followers found that very empowering. But Islamic scholars regretted the very new innovations to how their Islamic theology was interpreted. And on the other hand, black essayists like James Baldwin influentially argued against the way that they were trying to achieve black liberation. And while white people and the white public simply saw them as this dangerous hate group. And there was this untrue perception in the public that Muhammad Ali was just blindly following the teachings of the Nation of Islam movement. But in fact, his allegiance was a lot more selective and really revolved around the radical self-love of blackness that in itself was a type of resistance in a world where blackness was portrayed as bad or wrong or unwanted. And so Ali would proclaim, I'm so pretty, or I don't have to be what you want me to be, I'm free to be what I want. And so all of this manifested itself in the opposition that people had to accepting his new name. I mean, when you look at the media and in particular newspapers, you see the number of mentions of Cassius Clay versus Muhammad Ali. And it was only by 1971, which was seven years after he converted, that the media would predominantly use his preferred name. And one striking thing, going back to this point of his name change and conversion, 
being controversial, even within some black circles, was that at times black fighters in the ring would refuse to call him by his name. And for example, in 1967, when he was fighting Ernie Terrell, Terrell, in conversation with one of his own team members, called him by the name Clay. And Muhammad Ali took so much offense to this that it quickly escalated and he threatened to punish Terrell and well started a shoving match at their press conference. And when the match eventually happened, Muhammad Ali made him suffer through 15 rounds. And at the end of every round or at every clinch, he would shout at Terrell and ask him, what's my name? So we're now looking at the Vietnam War and how Muhammad Ali shaped race discussions through it. So the Vietnam War was an indirect war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it was fought between 1955 and 1975 as part of an ongoing conflict between the two Cold War powers. And in America, it was framed in this struggle against the Soviet Union. And so any opposition was seriously portrayed as un-American, and the government actively avoided public debate about the war. And while Muhammad Ali was already making a name for himself as someone who rejected the American status quo, and this was pushed even further and more powerfully when he refused his draft to serve in the Vietnam War. In 1964, Muhammad Ali became eligible for the draft to go fight in Vietnam, and it soon made headlines across the country. And well, Muhammad Ali took that momentum from the media and started touring colleges across the country, campaigning against the draft and in particular what the war stood for. And one of these key facts that came out of these conversations was that the number of black deaths was massively outweighing the number of white deaths on the front lines of Vietnam. And so this was no longer just a struggle of peace against war. It was one about race. And since the beginning, Muhammad Ali had questioned the motives behind the war and connected it to his resistance of the status quo in America. And he asked the public in slightly paraphrased terms, he said, why should they ask me and other black people to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while black people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? And while in 1964, Muhammad Ali became eligible for the draft, it was in 1967 that he was finally summoned to war and at this point, he definitively refuses to go. And as a result, he was immediately stripped of his heavyweight title and convicted with draft evasion, plus sentenced to five years in prison, which later turned to a three-year ban in boxing and a $10,000 fine. But this is why so many people respected him, because he was willing to sacrifice going to jail, he gave up his prime years as an athlete, and he had his beloved title of heavyweight world champion taken away from him, all in the name of his convictions and his beliefs. And this kind of resistance was so much more meaningful when we look at the black boxers that came before Muhammad Ali. And that's because those boxers had chosen to conform to the status quo because it was really the only means for them to be able to participate in the boxing matches that they had historically been excluded from. So as we mentioned, Joe Louis' PR campaign completely sanitized him 
from this black man into this idea of a man that could be accepted by white America. And then he goes on to serve in the army just as another boxer, Sugar Ray Robinson. And well, in this generation of boxers prior to Muhammad Ali, this conformity had really been the only strategy that was available to them to get their due in the boxing ring. And it was this image of this conforming black boxer that became the only acceptable black boxer for white America. And then comes Muhammad Ali, who flips this whole thing on its head. And he becomes a champion of black power against white bigotry, of peace over war, and of the young against the old. And not just in America. Ali's resistance against the Vietnam War was taken as this really important inspiration for anti-colonial movements around the world. So in 1970, Muhammad Ali's ban gets lifted, and as a result, he starts fighting again. But it's safe to say that he's not the same fighter he once was. He just doesn't have the same sort of speed or match fitness. So Ali lost his first shot at winning back his heavyweight title against Joe Frazier in what was dubbed the fight of the century. And then Joe Frazier goes and loses his title against a much bigger and much stronger George Foreman, and that too in just two rounds. And the funny thing is that Ali, even though he lost against Joe Frazier, challenges the much bigger, much stronger, and now world champion George Foreman for his heavyweight title. And this fight in 1974 was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. And it was so because it was the first heavyweight match held in Africa, in Kinshasa, in modern-day Democratic Republic of Congo. And it was really the climax of everything, not only was it the most expensive prize money purse out of any fight on record at the time. But Ali mentioned that it was really a holy war and it was him, the freedom fighter, against Foreman who was fighting for the establishment. And the reason why he said this was because Ali and Foreman were on two opposing ends of a spectrum. Ali was anti-status quo while Foreman conformed to the status quo. Ali was a symbol of black power, while Foreman was in favor of gradual racial progress. Ali was the anti-colonial hero, while Foreman was praised for being a true American patriot. And this clash between these two massively opposing figures and symbols suddenly fused sports with black pride into this global movement. And for President Mobutu of Zaire at the time, this was really a symbol of Black liberation standing up to European colonialism by having the fight set in Africa. And for that, he spent $15 million refurbishing the stadium, building a new airport for the city, and even a new highway. And this fight really had all the drama you could possibly want in one. I mean, journalists were really getting at each fighter's egos. With Ali, they were saying he was just too old. He wouldn't be able to stand up to the much stronger and much bigger George Foreman. And on the other hand, with Foreman, they were always saying that he would live in Ali's shadow because Ali's titles were unfairly taken away from him. And so come fight night with all this tension and all this animosity between the two, it was really an all-guns-blazing affair. And Foreman came in and he wanted to finish the fight off quickly, punching Ali with blow after blow. But Ali knew that this was the tactic that Foreman was going to use. 
And so Ali in training developed the rope-a-dope tactic, which was basically to hold back on the rope, defend, and wear down his opponent until he got too tired, at which time Ali would strike. And that's exactly what happened. By round eight, George Foreman just simply could not hold on for any longer. And that's where Ali hit back with lightning quick strikes and floored Foreman to take the heavyweight championship. summarize Muhammad Ali's boxing career in a phrase, it would be against all odds. Right from the Sonny Liston fight to the Rumble in the Jungle against George Foreman. And then later with the Thriller in Manila, where he got his redemption against Joe Frazier. And also when he defeated Leon Spinks to win the heavyweight title for a third time. Every single point, everyone doubted Ali's abilities until he proved in the ring what he could do. And just his boxing career is already a remarkable story. And then add to that how deeply involved he was in fighting against all kinds of injustices. I mean, we've talked about his fight against racial injustice, his opposition to the Vietnam War. And what's amazing is that he wasn't just deeply influential in shaping the debates around these issues and the course of American society. He went on to become this hugely influential icon and symbol for all kinds of movements of people that saw themselves as downtrodden against colonialism, against racial injustice in the world at large. And through what he stood for throughout his whole life, people found meaning and inspiration. And through that, he became this superstar in all senses of the word. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback. So let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. Goodbye.